Welcome to the Public Morality. Recently, the Colorado Supreme Court in a 4-3 decision based on action taken by members of the Colorado Republican Party disqualified former President Donald Trump from having his name appear on the Colorado ballot in the upcoming presidential primary. Citing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Colorado court ruled the former president because of his participation in the January 6th Capitol attack was ineligible to appear on the ballot. This is a major development with lots of constitutional and political considerations that the U.S. Supreme Court will likely have to consider. Joining me to discuss the implications of the Colorado ruling is constitutional law professor Mark Graber. Professor Graber teaches constitutional law, theory, and history at the University of Maryland School of Law and recently wrote an op-ed entitled, Why the 14th Amendment Bars Trump from Office. Professor Mark Graber, thank you for joining us today on The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Let's begin our conversation by having you offer an explanation of uh, the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling against former President Donald Trump. Well, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, declares that any person who once was or is an officer of the United States or of a state government and then engages in an insurrection against the United States is disqualified from being an officer of the United States or any state in the future, unless Congress by a two-thirds vote removes the disqualification. President Trump, the Colorado court held, had been an officer of the United States. The president is an officer of the United States. The Constitution refers to the president as an officer frequently. The Colorado court then found that President Trump had engaged in an insurrection, in particular, inciting an insurrection is a form of engagement. The Colorado court found that, and therefore the Colorado court concluded that Donald Trump was not qualified to be on the ballot to be president of the United States. So that's the simple summary. Now, um, the Constitution in the broader sense gives states jurisdictions for holding elections. Does it say anything uh, specifically about who can be on the ballot? The Constitution, in one sense, says nothing about who can be on the ballot, but the Constitution does say who is qualified for office. And it's certainly a reasonable decision for a state to make as to not confuse voters that only people who are qualified to hold the office can be on the ballot. So but before we get into your piece uh, on Common Dreams, uh, talk about the significance of the 14th Amendment. Uh, could one offer... Um, that the United States, up to my, our history, could be delineated between a country pre-14th Amendment and a country post-14th Amendment. Your thoughts on that, sir? Well, many people consider the post-Civil War amendments as a whole 
to be a second founding. That is, Abraham Lincoln, in some sense, said at Gettysburg, this nation shall have a new birth of freedom. And many people think getting rid of slavery, the declaration that all people were created equal, entitled to equal protection, due process, privileges, immunities, and citizenship, created a new order. Others think, no, that merely perfected the old order. But in addition to Section 1, in many ways, the United States became a little more majoritarian, a little more of a militant democracy with Sections 2 and 3. Section 2 says, if you don't permit people to vote, barring crime, you don't get to count them in your representative basis. That the idea being that you get congressmen based on your voters, not based on people you disfranchise. I don't get to vote for you if you don't have the right to vote. Section 3 says we're a democracy. In a democracy, the only people qualified to rule are people who play by the democratic rules. If when you lose, you resort to violence, you're not playing by the democratic rules, you're not eligible to govern a constitutional democracy. So those are the ideas. Mm-hmm. So so let's talk about um, the piece, uh, your piece that I read on commondreams.org entitled The Constitutional Case for Keeping uh, Trump Off the Ballot. What is that case in your view? And sort of give us a, a, a distillation of, of the arguments you put forth, sir. Basically, the arguments of the Colorado Supreme Court, if you go through Section 3, Line by line, Donald Trump meets all the conditions for disqualification. He was an officer of the government. There is a sort of a notion out there the president isn't an officer of the government. I've read the complete volumes of the 39th Congress. That would have stunned them. They assumed the president was an officer of the government, an officer under the government, and they often said so. The next notion is, did this person engage in an insurrection? The law at the time, 14th Amendment passed, said an insurrection consists of an assemblage of people resisting a law by force and violence for a public purpose. If the mob had been invading the Capitol for the purpose of selling furniture on eBay, that's private gain, it's not an insurrection. But they were there to change the result in a presidential election, that's a public purpose. Donald Trump urged force and violence to change the result in a presidential election. That's inciting an insurrection. And therefore, Donald Trump cannot hold an office under the United States. Again, the framers explicitly said the presidency is an office under the United States. Um, So the rationale, you've mentioned Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I'm going to read that section um, and then um, pose a question to you. Uh, Section 3 reads, no person 
shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office civil or military under the United States or under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or any executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So part of your, I mean, part of what you, you just stated, um, so to take that, whether the president is an officer or not an officer is sort of to lift the president out of this long list of people for which section three applies. Would that be the sort of the constitutional argument there? Well, what people have claimed is it doesn't mention the president specifically. It doesn't mention judges specifically, but both the constitution and people at the time spoke of the president as an officer, an officer of the government, an officer under the government. In fact, one opponent of the 14th Amendment said, I don't see the president anywhere. A Republican supporter of the 14th Amendment immediately said, that's what we mean by officer under the government, whereby that opponent said, I, I see, you're right, my bad. It, it seems to me, and, and maybe you can have this, uh, unpack this for our listeners, sir, that there's a tension because if we just leave it in what we assume are the minds of the framers of the 14th Amendment uh, versus our contemporary reality, how does one balance those constitutional tensions? I mean, because we clearly are not living in the world of 1868. So how, how do you balance between the what was written and what's applicable in the 21st century? That's a great question, and I should emphasize that I am not an originalist. So we might ask, was there any reason to say the only person who can't be disqualified under Section 3 is a person who was a president of the United States but never held any other office. I can't think of any good reason, something that would have constituted a good reason in 1866 or something that would have constituted a good reason in 2023 for leaving out the president. So sometimes we might say, well, people did not understand this to be equality in 1866, but we now know it is equality, and the Constitution only says equality. So we should have a living Constitution. Perfectly good argument. But the understanding of what an officer is really hasn't changed. There's nothing different today than there was in 1866 to read officer in section three any differently than they did. Following up on that, what what were the the uh, what were the concerns 
of those who who uh, crafted Section 3. And if you could, juxtapose those concerns with the contemporary challenges that gave rise to the uh, Colorado Supreme Court decision, if you would. Okay, well, there are a number of concerns. First, they emphasize perjury. Person who takes an oath and then violates the oath is a perjurer. A perjurer is not to be trusted. Donald Trump took an oath to protect, defend the Constitution, and he violated that oath with the events on January 6th. He is not a person to be trusted with power. The framers were great believers that matters should be decided by voting. Lincoln often said, if you don't like my policies, Vote me out of office. What he also said, though, is once recourse has been had to ballots, there can be no recourse to bullets. In other words, if people win an election legitimately, they have the right to govern. The way you try to defeat them is by winning the next election. You're not allowed to use violence. Donald Trump had recourse to metaphorical bullets after he lost the ballots. He did not accept the election. Now, it's one thing. It's open to everybody to say the election was unfair and there are methods of contesting. But the methods of contesting are not physically invading the Congress and threatening the safety of members of Congress and the vice president. So the same reasons that motivated the framers to adopt Section 3, that traitors do not have the moral capacity to be governors is the reason that justifies disqualifying Donald Trump under Section 3. One of the aspects of the, of the Colorado decision that a, that a number of legal scholars found fascinating is what some view as a left-of-center Colorado Supreme Court that relied on bedrock conservative principles such as textualism, originalism, and that the states are the ultimate administrators of elections. Using your Supreme Court crystal ball, I, I know that we're not going to hold you to that after, after this conversation, sir, but using your Supreme Court crystal ball, might it make it difficult for the conservative-leading Supreme Court to overturn a decision, or might they choose a rationale, my words, similar to Bush v. Gore in 2000. Okay, with the proviso that not only don't I have a crystal ball, but the crystal ball I have doesn't work really well. I thought the Yankees would win the pennant last year. Um, so nobody should trust me. But I think there's an interesting challenge for the Supreme Court. I think first I should say on any method of interpretation, I think there's a powerful case for disqualifying Donald Trump. But if you're an originalist, the case is even stronger because the framers blocked off all the originalist exits. Now, maybe there is some technical procedural ground on which you can say the suit is not ripe or something else is wrong. But I think the conservatives 
are going to have trouble. And it might be, while these people are conservatives, they may not see Donald Trump as a conservative. They may see Donald Trump as simply a threat to American democracy. If you're a conservative, Governor Haley, Governor DeSantis, Governor Christie can give you everything you want without the mayhem. They may go that way. They may not. Again, nobody should trust my crystal ball. Hmm. Well, your Yankees disqualifier notwithstanding, um, you you mentioned in the previous answer that they blocked off the conservative exits. Say say more specifically about that, if you would. What 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 the, which, what, what you mean by that? Well, one possible exit is the claim that the Fourteenth Amendment requires congressional legislation to implement. The problem with that is first the Union Army began to implement Section 3 immediately upon ratification. They did not wait for congressional legislation. None was asked for. None was required. States began to implement Section 3 before, I'm sorry, immediately after the 14th Amendment was ratified. When Congress finally got around to ratify, I'm sorry, to adopting an enforcement mechanism, the members of Congress didn't say what the Union Army, what states were doing were illegal. They said, we've got a better, more efficient method. And by the way, the method they used left some matters entirely for states to decide. So the self-execution claim that you need legislation, the framers blocked that. They gave people amnesty before passing laws implementing Section 3. Why would you need to grant anyone amnesty if there was no mechanism for disqualifying the person? So that's an example of blocking off a procedural exit. Colorado um, Supreme Court also invoked the language of uh, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch while he was uh, an appellate judge, I believe, on the Tenth Circuit. And Justice Gorsuch opined then, quote, as states' legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process that permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office, unquote. Using Gorsuch's words on the on the 10th Circuit, can reasonable persons conclude that former President Trump is indeed constitutionally prohibited? Well, I hope so, because I'm a reasonable person. I, I like to think of myself as a reasonable person. Well, I have well your, Yankee, your Yankee prediction sort of invalidates that, but I'll leave that aside. Go ahead. Yeah, no, <laughs> there, there, there are problems, and I will assure listeners, I have three children who will debate that proposition. <laughs> but, no, I think reasonable people can come to the conclusion the presidency is an office of the government of the United States. Donald Trump incited an insurrection. Therefore, he's disqualified. And our Constitution leaves 
electoral matters in the hands of the state subject to congressional revisions. Rather important, if we read Article 1, it's not the case that Congress makes the rules for elections. Rather, states decide the time, place, and manner of elections. But Congress can say, no, actually, we want to do something. So for a long time in United States history, states had elections for federal offices on different days. You could see the, the presidential election in one state was held October 1st, another state, October 15th. It was only later on that Congress said, let's have a uniform day of election. So we have always tolerated a great deal of diversity of the states, leaving Congress as the institution responsible for uniformity, if uniformity is thought to be a good thing. In, in addition, in addition, um, Judge Justice Gorsuch's language in the in that ruling that um, the Colorado Supreme Court uh, referred has not historically boded well for marginalized communities, giving rise to theories such as I'm sure you, you're well familiar interposition and nullification, which were the basis to justify slavery as well as Jim Crow segregation. Do you worry about that possibility that this could adversely if the, if the Colorado Supreme Court uh, ruling would let stand, this could eventually uh, become uh, onerous to marginalized communities. Do you worry about that possibility, sir? I worry about that possibility with respect to everything. So there is a tendency to interpret and implement laws in ways that disadvantage marginalized communities. So if we convict Donald Trump for various criminal offenses, we're probably convicting him of laws that are more aptly or more frequently used against vulnerable minorities than the powerful. But the solution is not to tell the powerful you are constitutionally immune, but to implement the law fairly. So if we do not hold Donald Trump accountable to the law, that will not affect how we treat vulnerable minorities in the United States. But if we do say, here are the rules, everyone must follow them, we at least have a precedent for equality under the law. May not be a strong read, but it may be the best we have. I, as, as I understand the ruling, and, and just as you were forthcoming about um, the Yankees, let me be forthcoming uh, I am not an attorney. The only bar I've passed is my local tavern. So so just take that, um, if you will, sir. My reading of the ruling by the uh, Colorado uh, Supreme Court suggests to me that, that their argument is that self Section 3 is, is self-executing. 
and so that you don't need to commit a crime or be convicted of a crime. Is that the proper way to read Section Three? Or is there another? Is there another venue there? That I believe is the proper way of interpreting Section Three. Again, the people who were disqualified immediately after the Civil War did not were not charged with committing any crime. Congress amnestied thousands of people in 1872, none of whom had been convicted, none of whom had been charged with any crime. It was very clear in the debates over Section 3, Section 3 was thought to be a qualification for office, not a criminal sanction. So it is not a crime not to have been born in the United States, but if you were not born in the United States, you can't be president of the United States for better or worse. Whether participation in an insurrection in a crime is an entirely different story. This is, by the way, common in American law. So if people can remember, and this may date both of us, the O.J. Simpson trials. O.J. Simpson in a criminal trial was found not guilty of murder. But in a civil trial, he was found liable for wrongful death. They are different proceedings with different burdens. Are there, to your knowledge, sir, any other provisions in the Constitution that have this self-executing power? Well, in one sense, most of the provisions, or all provisions have to be executed in some way. The Constitution doesn't have magical tentacles, but in fact, what we normally mean by self-execution is you don't need a federal statute to claim the right. So in fact, if government violates my First Amendment rights, I don't need a federal statute to go to court. I can just simply say the state action is inconsistent with the First Amendment. If somebody wins a presidential election, they don't need a separate statute. Here are the rules in the Constitution. You got that many electoral votes. Congratulations, you won. How would you respond to those concerned that Section 3 applied in a self-executing manner has the power to potentially take away a voter's choice by using the subjectivity of the judiciary if, if, there's, if it is self-executing? Well, in one sense, all constitutional provisions are implemented by human beings who make their best judgment. So the issue really is, is, it our, is our best judgment Donald Trump an insurrectionist? A person whose power is likely to curtail the democratic choices of others. Remember that voters can vote for a candidate who says, I'm Donald Trump 
only I don't believe in implementing my policies by violence. There are a lot of Republicans running for president who say they agree with 98% of what Trump does. They just don't like Trump the person. So we're not taking away a voter's choice to vote for any policy. But remember, we're not simply thinking of voters in 2024. Voters also need to have choices in 2026 and 2028. And when you vote for a person who uses violence to defeat legitimate votes, you're putting at risk voters' capacity to choose in the future. So if if one takes your argument for uh, for Section 3, uh, and, 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 it, and it does indeed have this self-executing power, does that risk mitigating Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection and due process? Because I could see someone saying, well, Donald Trump has not been convicted um, this is only what the Colorado support. I'm um, Colorado Supreme Court believes he has been denied due process and equal protection to get to this ruling. How would you respond to them? Well, again, Donald Trump has had numerous opportunities to contest whether he participated in an insurrection. So it's not that he's lacked the opportunities. Rather, he has failed to put on the evidence. He consistently said, this is not the right forum. I'm not going to participate here. I'm not going to take the stand and say, I didn't do it. Colorado had a hearing. They had witnesses. I didn't hear the Trump people said, we have more witnesses. We have more evidence. They didn't say that. So it's not, he hasn't been denied due process. I am sure that the people bringing the disqualifying lawsuits would be thrilled to have Trump say, let's have a hearing and I'm going to demonstrate that I didn't do it. It is, uh, and now I'm looking at the political tea leaves here for just a moment. It's unlikely that uh, former president, if he were the nominee or any Republican for that matter, would carry um, the state of Colorado, which has uh, consistently been in the Democratic Party's uh, camp for some time. But what would prohibit a more competitive state like, say, Wisconsin, that has a very different Supreme Court makeup uh, or Florida from using this same rationale as a way to keep President Biden off the ballot. And, and, and moreover, wouldn't that also really begin to unravel and undermine the confidence that, that, that's already fragile in our election system? Well, one might ask the same question of anything. So Donald Trump is charged in Georgia with illegally interfering with the election. What would prevent a DA in Texas from accusing Biden on the basis of no evidence 
of illegally interfering with the election. If Donald Trump is convicted, say, for murder, well, yeah, a DA in Louisiana could try to indict Joe Biden for murder. The crucial fact is there is no evidence that most elected officials participated in January 6th. There is substantial evidence that Donald Trump did. And if we're going to decide we can't prosecute some of the rich and powerful because someone with trumped up evidence could prosecute other people, we will wind up never prosecuting the rich and powerful. They will be above the law. So the issue is not whether some ambitious prosecutor, Republican prosecutor, could try to frame Joe Biden, but whether is there substantial evidence that Joe Biden is an insurrectionist? So far, that evidence has not been produced. Uh, as you well know, sir, impeachment has been weaponized in our lifetime beyond our, our, our recognition. The debt ceiling has been weaponized. So what is to prohibit Section 3, as we talk about those, those, those zealous, zealous partisans, from weaponizing it? And if you have people under uber-partisan conditions making unfounded accusations about how to interpret Section 3, I mean, how, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the, the um, 1868. I mean, how does that not place us in a very uh, tenuous situation as a democracy? Well, I think maybe it's the wrong tense. We are in a very tenuous circumstance where a number of things have been politicized. The question with Donald Trump is whether this is a frame-up. That is, Donald Trump is being disqualified, say, on the grounds that we claim Donald Trump is not 35 years old. It's under 35. That would be a weaponizing, a politicizing of the requirement that the president be at least 35 years old. But it is not weaponizing Section 3 to point out there is substantial factual evidence that Donald Trump participated in an insurrection. If other people then want to weaponize Section 3 and use it in the absence of substantial evidence, that's another story. Because I emphasize again, if we refuse to follow the law because other people will break the law, soon we will have no law. I mean, this really seems, in my view, to really put the, which I think one could surmise is a very cons right-wing leaning Supreme Court. That it seems to me they're in a bind. Um, how, I mean, other than ruling for Colorado, how might they overturn this? What would be the rationale to over, how might they get out of this um, court who has used textual originalist language to textualist originalists? 
how might they get out of this if, if they if they were to try to overturn the, the ruling on the Colorado Supreme Court? Uh, once again, for, for reasons that are inexplicable, they haven't been calling me up regularly and saying, Professor Graber, we desperately need your advice. We want to overturn the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, how do we go about doing it? Now, as most historians will tell you, the Supreme Court may claim originalism, but they play fast and loose with a great many historical facts. So one notion is they invent some historical facts. They find two people in 1876 who say the president is not an officer of the United States, ignoring the 20 people who in the same debate said the president was a civil officer of the United States and the hundreds of people before that who made the same claim. But they say those two were right. The other hundreds of people, they were just wrong. They rely, there is one case that says Section 3, not self-executing. That case has historic problems. The judge the year before said it was self-executing. They say, no, that case is right. I mean, if you want to reach a certain result and you've got life tenure, there are a thousand and one bad reasons you can rely on. And the mere fact that academics will give the court a D plus is not likely to deter them. As, um, do you, I mean, just for, for our listeners, just so we're clear, could you just give a brief distillation on the difference between originalism and, and, and textualism, if you would? Because we, we've kind of thrown those terms around without defining them. Well, on some versions, there may not be a difference. Here's what I teach. Originalism relies on now what the average American, how the average American would interpret the words of a text at the time the text was ratified. So what we want to know is from 1866 to 1868, how would the average American have understood the words in section three? Now, one understanding of textualism is that's also textualism. Another is simply, how does the average American understand those words today? So, for example, the average American in 1866 would have thought forbidding women from entering graduate school was not a violation of equality as the Constitution defined equality, the average American today would disagree. With that said, how, how, how do we navigate these constitutional waters? How much emphasis should we place on what was the understanding and the intent uh, of the reasonable person in 1868 versus the reasonable person in 2023. I mean, does does that in some way sort of organically make the case for a what some people refer to as a living constitution? Well, what I think we do 
and where I disagree with the court is I agree we start. What were these people trying to do? But they didn't simply use words isolated from context. What is a cruel and unusual punishment in a world where most parents witness, say, the deaths of half their children is very different than in a world where parents expect all their children will outlive them. So the first thing we say, okay, what, how did they understand the wor words? Then we should say, is there anything about our political context that has changed so that in our context, the words have a different implication than they had. So we might say, okay, they thought they were including all officers. Is there any reason we have today for thinking, no, the president is really special, but only a president who's never had any other office? So we ought to exclude Donald Trump from Section 3, even though no other president ever was excluded. So I think if you ask that question, your answer is that no, we still think they got it right in 1866. Not that we have to be bound by everything they thought in 1866, but if the last 150 years provide no reason for changing how a provision should be implemented, we shouldn't change. I pose that last question because I know some of the rationale and and and, um, and I'm speaking about this uh, in, a, in a more macro sense. But some of the rationale to overturn, you know, Roe was the fact that, uh, well, abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution, uh, but privacy, privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution, but privacy is 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 pervasive in the constitution from the first even the third amendment to you know the 14th so you you have privacy everywhere um is that the way we should be looking at the constitution or should we just be focusing on section three in this case without any consideration um to the the um uh, relationship that other amendments have to this ruling or might have i should say well i think we should do with Section 3, exactly what we should have done with abortion. It's the same question. The Constitution says that persons shall have, say, no state shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. This was understood as certain fundamental rights as a citizen. Now, the question we should have asked was, given we now know women are full citizens, does our notion of what constitute the fundamental rights of citizens change? That maybe because in 1866, they did not acknowledge that women were full citizens. They failed to acknowledge that abortion was a fundamental right. The question for Section 3 is, 
has anything so similarly changed? The argument that Donald Trump should be disqualified is that nothing of relevance has changed. There is no reason why we should want perjurers in office today when they didn't want them in office in 1866. There is no reason why we should want people who defy the democratic vote of the people by force and violence in office today when they didn't want those people in office in 1866. In other words, we can see with respect to abortion, fundamental social changes that ought to have influenced how we understood words, there aren't the same fundamental social changes with respect to Section 3. And I'll add, none of the lawyers for Donald Trump has ever pointed to any such change. Once uh, an issue reaches, like I said, this constitutional level, it's, it's less about the individuals and, and more about the abiding principles. Might the Colorado ruling uh, become one of those paradoxical moments where the Supreme Court, I mean, where the, where the Colorado court might be on solid constitutional ground, as you've articulated in this conversation, but the long-term implications could undermine democracy, further escalating that distrust we alluded to earlier. Um, might that be something that the Supreme Court finds a way to... Um, an escape clause here. Once again, we're calling on my malfunctioning crystal ball. <laughs> and, you know, I can't sit here and tell you that if the Supreme Court disqualifies Donald Trump, manna will fall from heaven and all the problems of the world, or at least all the problems of American democracy, will go away. In fact, I can promise you they won't. Here is what we know. Most countries have some form of disqualification. They use it. The heavens do not fall. Manna doesn't usually fall from heaven, but the heavens do not fall. In other words, there is no evidence that disqualifying candidates who urge violence against democratically enacted laws result in a further degradation of democracy. There isn't a whole lot of evidence that it's a cure-all for the problems of democracy. But the claim that, oh my God, this is just going to make a bad situation worse, are simply speculative, not based on what comparative evidence we have from other regimes. Hmm. You, you, you said that um, whatever happens, manna did, would not fall, from, probably wouldn't fall from heaven. I would um, challenge you to say that I, I was told that manna did fall from heaven when uh, Otani signed with the Dodgers. So, I mean, so things are possible. So, <laughs> uh, Professor not in New Mark York. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Professor Mark Graber, sir, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the public around. They really enjoyed your insight. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.